0: Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And howdy, folks. We're here with you again to talk about film. Danielle, what is
1: up? I have been thinking about something that might just be a real bummer of a question, but I'm interested in your thoughts about it. Mm. I'm kind of curious about what what is grief now? Like, what does grief look and feel like now? Because I feel like... You know, a couple of years ago I had a really good grasp on the difference between grief, depression, sadness, and just kind of malaise. Mm. And now I just feel like they're all jumbled together. Like for the past couple of years I'm like, I don't know, am I sad, am I depressed, am I am I grief-stricken? <laughs> but yeah. I really feel like I'm I'm just experiencing a lot of grief lately. It's not enough to immobilize me, but it's enough to make me wonder like is this just how we're going to feel now? like just cycles of grief. Do you think it's age possibly?
0: Do you think that like maybe when we were younger we we never had the sense that things would end or die and not just like people but just like things like segments of life like yeah. realities. So I don't know, part of me thinks that that's like something that happens as you get older is just just more things just sort of end and yeah, fall apart.
1: I mean, that is definitely a more eloquent way to state that than I what I was thinking, which is just like, I'm fucking tired and sad. <laughs> well, now I want to know what brought this
0: on, though, because that's a, that's a lot. I'm not saying it's a bummer. Ain't no bummer big enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. <laughs> Ain't no bummer high enough. Ain't no bummer low enough. But it is, like, it is, like, a big question, so I'm just curious, like,
1: details. Partially the change of the season. Yeah. It's been really rainy and dark here, uh, which always puts me in, you know, a mood. Mm. Partially, my house is overwhelming and has been overwhelming me for a couple of months now straight. Yeah. So the, you know, the darkness and the rain has also brought leaks and the roof and... New problems for me to address, (laughs) which has made me panic about money and question whether or not this was the right decision. I think it's a grief, too, that, like, um, you know, you know the reason I bought this house, which is so my grandmother could move in with me. And the fact that she's not here yet makes me sad because I think that if she was here or was able to, to live here... I would at least see the usefulness of all the work I'm doing, Yeah, like I'm doing it for a reason. So instead, I, you know, I have to go visit her. Well, I don't have to. I shouldn't say it that way, but it's, you know, I, I visit her at her, you know, retirement village apartment. And she's just so tiny now. And just like I hug her and she's just kind of like a tiny lady. Yeah. And I can like feel her little bony shoulders. And, you know, she's fine. She's fine. Let me just you know, say that as well. But I've watched her age so dramatically in my life. Yeah. And every time I see her now, it hits me that she's just aged so much. Yeah. And she's not like the little power tank of a person that, that I used to know.
0: Yeah. I totally understand that feeling. I think that moment hit me, like with my own grandmother, when she stopped dying her hair.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: And that only happened when she went to assisted living. She was pretty much dying her hair up until she went into a facility and they didn't dye her hair for her. Yeah. And it was that thing where I was like, oh, wow. I guess I knew that she was gray and that she did dye her hair black.
1: Right. But seeing it,
0: but seeing it, I think was jarring for me. And then it just immediately made me feel like, wow. She just has aged so rapidly, like, in a very short period of time. And so, yeah, I feel like I understand what you're talking about, just the notion of somebody just sort of physically looking and feeling older.
1: Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's really, it is jarring. It's jarring and it's, you know, makes you aware of your own mortality in a way. And, you know, also, look, for real, like, one of the main things that brought this question on for me is that I have been fighting with men for, like, five days straight. (laughs) And I'm just so tired of fighting with men that I'm like, is this how I interact with men now? Is just yelling at them to treat me better. (laughs) Like, is that the point of life that I'm at right now? Or I just have to constantly remind men not to treat me like a piece of shit. Are you
0: experiencing the loss of good dudes in your life? Is that kind of how
1: it feels? Is that where the grief is coming from? I love how that was phrased like the beginning of an infomercial. <laughs> like, are you experiencing the loss of good dudes in your life? If so, call us at Salino and Barnes. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, I think I am. I'm, I'm experiencing a loss of communication in a way that I never expressed or never thought I would experience. Right. I was re-watching... Um, Over the past couple of weeks, I rewatched all of Six Feet Under.
0: Oh, God. Well, no wonder you want to talk about
1: grief. I know. My therapist said the same thing. She was like, um, lady, you watched five seasons of people dying every episode.
0: Okay. Why did you not reveal that detail at the beginning of this episode? Because I was sitting here going like, Oh, my God. Like, what is bringing about this like very <laughs> deep, important question? And then I'm like, oh, she just watched every season of Six Feet Under.
1: I watched the whole thing. I love that show, but I can only do that rewatch like once every decade because it levels me. It still levels me. That's how good that show was. But yeah, I, I was watching that season where Kathy Bates becomes friends with Ruth Fisher. Mm. And it's, like, such a phenomenal season. So many great episodes. But she talks very vividly about how nobody pays attention to women their age so they could just steal things and do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And it's always been such a funny scene to me. But this time I saw that and I just started, like, crying. (laughs) Like, Ruth Fisher made me cry so hard this time around. And uh, I'm approaching a a point in my life where I'm both invisible but not invisible enough. Like I wish it was either or. <laughs> and I'm kind of stuck in a weird middle spot where I don't really matter, but I also have to do things. I don't know how to how to express it. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't matter to a certain segment of the population.
0: Well, I mean, listen, that episode that you're talking about where they're like shoplifting And Kathy Bates is like, fuck it. Like, we can literally steal whatever we want to because we're ghosts. Yeah. We're we're middle-aged women, a.k.a. we're ghosts. And that was one of the most profound things I've ever heard on a television show. And I never forget it, ever. In fact, did we even mention that in the Misery episode? I feel like we might have. I think so. But it fucking rocked me to the core and still does every time I think about it. Absolutely. But there's a moment, too, where that also feels weirdly exhilarating to me. Like, where I'm like, oh, this entire part of the population doesn't know I exist anymore. I have nothing of value because I'm not this, like, young, beautiful woman who is adored by the culture or something. But also... Yes. Pressure's off. Yeah. I can fucking be the whoever the fuck I want to be now. And there's some kind of like, I don't know, it feels sort of exhilarating, but I also know that it is hard to think about at the same time, like it's hard to to think. Yeah. Wow, like who am I and and how do how do people see me and how do I matter and how do I not matter?
1: Yeah, and it's compounded by this fact that I've I've done so much of my life alone. Yeah. And a lot of it has been intentional, but not all of it. And now I feel like, oh, it's not even an option anymore for me to not do things alone. Like, that whole part of my life has slid by, (laughs) and I didn't even know it was happening. But also, by
0: being a homeowner by yourself, that is, like, the ultimate test of your resilience as an independent person. Yeah. Okay? And you've been through the fucking ringer with this house. We hear about it all the time. And there is a moment where I wonder, as somebody who wants to go down this road, am I strong enough <laughs> to, to own my own house and be by myself and have the ultimate? It's kind of like the feeling of going to on vacation by yourself or doing these very extreme things that... Require you to have kind of a steeliness or something. Yeah, and I just feel like you shouldn't. Um, I don't think you should be too hard on yourself in that regard because it is, you know, tough. It's extra tough. It's it's tough to be on your own and go to weddings and you know go eat yeah. and all the little bullshit. Let alone have to like figure out how to get wild animals out of your house. <laughs>
1: Thank you for that. It's very true. And I I think you are absolutely strong enough to go down this road and go through this process. I will say, do not buy a farm under any (laughs) circumstances. If you need that country air and that country life, you can stay here for half a year at a time. Knock yourself out. Do not buy a goddamn house that is designed (laughs) to have animals all over it. What about a country duplex <laughs> country
0: <laughs> townhouse
1: and we have the title of our episode <laughs>
0: <laughs> well but like listen if that's what i mean is that like it's a huge undertaking and it's a farm yeah and it's in a rural area and it's in your hometown i mean come on there's a lot of things going on and don't beat yourself up i mean i know that again you said something the other week that really um it forces a perspective, right? It's like yeah, these situations force you to sort of examine a lot of things about your life and who you are, and that's what life is, I guess, is to just sort of constantly question, like, who am I and how am I and what am I doing? But the grief part, I think, definitely is informed by six seasons of <laughs> Six Feet Under.
1: It was such a mistake. I should have parsed that out. Over the course of a year or four, if you're going to re-watch Six Feet Under, if you're someone who's interested in that, you should watch it the way it was aired and let it take you four or five years to watch the whole thing because watching it all at once in the span of two weeks is devastating.
0: There are two shows on Heritage HBO mm. that I do not think I can return to. One of them is Oz. Yes. And the other is Six Feet Under. Yeah. Oz, for many reasons. When I watched all the seasons of Oz, I binged them. This was, listen, kids, this was before we knew what binging was, okay? <laughs> <laughs> all I did was just buy the DVD box set <laughs> and then just sit there ah! and watch every disc all day long for an entire summer. Oh, God. With my roommates. And Amazing. I felt so insane. Like, you know how like when you watch a TV for too long you feel like you're in a dream state where you're in the world that the TV show is in?
1: Absolutely. Uh, that's
0: how I felt with Oz, where I was basically just like, Am I in jail right now? <laughs> I would I would be so dead if I went to this jail. Like I just wouldn't be able to be able to hang with the gangs and all of the indoctrination oh, bullshit and I would just not do the right thing, and I would definitely get murked. Um, (laughs) But with Six Feet Under, it felt kind of like the same thing where I was like, I think if I rewatched it again, I would feel like, oh, everything starts with death, Mm
1: -hmm. which is every
0: episode starts with death. Every
1: episode,
0: (laughs) creative deaths. Yes, and then I'm in these families, and I'm in these Uh, relationships, Nate and, what is that, Rachel Griffith's character? Brenda. That whole relationship. I mean, yes. it's too
1: much. That shit was tough to watch this time around. And let me, let me just give you a glimpse of my last month of TV to, to really compound why I'm thinking about grief right now. I watched all of Squid Game. I watched all of Midnight Mass. I watched the entire third season of You. And I watched five seasons of Six Feet Under.
0: Okay. What are we going to have to do here?
1: I need some goddamn joy in my life. Yes. I need some joy in my life that is not Bridgerton. I just can't go that down that road.
0: I mean, do they have another, like, Great British Bake Off season coming up? Like, you got to get out of this
1: cycle. <laughs> there is a new season of the Great British Bake Off. But I usually wait until the last episode airs so I can watch them all at once.
0: You know what I'm going to suggest? I got to say... I don't know if this is your steeze necessarily, but I know a lot of people really into the Hallmark Christmas movies. Maybe
1: this is for you. You know, I've never tried it. It's a thing. Maybe I don't need to judge it too harshly. Maybe I need to get into it.
0: Look, there's like a whole segment of our population that are obsessed with Hallmark films and Christmas movies and the whole, it's a juggernaut. It really is. It's a fucking juggernaut. And I feel like I'm never at the moment where I'm, there but i know people like i have coworkers, and you know we know people in the podcast world that do mm-hmm. podcasting about hallmark christmas movies and i'm always like should i go down that road am i at that <laughs> point yet what am i who am i and i'm almost there
1: is this the other side of the grief penny hallmark <laughs> movies though Because that is the question. It's like, I'm very comfortable being the grief person. Am I comfortable being the romantic, like the the romantically positive person? Yeah. The hopeful? I guess it's hope. Am I hopeful? Am I hopeful? Is what those movies make me think. (laughs) I don't think. You know, it's
0: true. It really, you really, (laughs) as uh, the type of hardcore bitches we are, it's, um... (laughs) kind of a stretch sometimes to believe that there's a world where people have meet cutes and they kiss underneath snow while on ice skates in <laughs> their hometowns and shit. It's hard to imagine if we're just talking about it, but sometimes when you're just in it, like when you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, I'm in it. Like I can, yeah. I can find myself there, but that's why I'm saying I, I'm, it's kind of TBD on whether or not this could be you, but... I'm just trying to think of the complete fucking opposite of those fucking four TV shows that you just mentioned.
1: I'm willing to throw it to the listeners. What would you watch if you need to wind down at the end of a day and you're not going to want to watch a murder show or a death show or a show that just makes you very sad for humanity? Like, what are you guys watching right now that's joyful? I'm thinking, give me a Nailed It. Give me a Great British Bake Off. Give me... I don't know, Daniel Tiger. I'll watch a cartoon. I'll watch (laughs) a cartoon. (laughs) I don't give a fuck. Tell me what you're watching. Listen,
0: you could go so far down the Daniel Tiger rabbit hole (laughs) if you really wanted to.
1: (laughs) You say this with such intense knowledge, like you have done this yourself.
0: (laughs) Yes, I have two young nephews, and they have been there, done that, with that little... Little
1: tiger? Little cub? <laughs> what was he? What is he? What is Daniel Tigers? Is he a doctor? Does he do anything or is he just a tiger? Like is he a garbage man, a doctor, a child? Well he was he was a
0: fucking puppet from Mr. Rogers that now has his own story and his own world. And I was always like, what is Daniel Tiger? How did that happen?
1: Wait a minute. This is the same Daniel Tiger from Mr. Rogers?
0: Yes. Are
1: you fucking kidding me?
0: Yes. Yes. (gasps) And he's out there teaching kids how to try new foods (gasps) and how to, you know, go to the bathroom when you start feeling like you have to take a dump. I mean, it's like life lessons. But yeah, so Daniel Tiger was a puppet from... The neighborhood of make believe, but then now is he not in that uh, neighborhood anymore? And he's got his own neighborhood, and he's doing his own thing. He's like his own franchise now. So it's a well, it's a well you could fall into and never get out of. Is what I'm saying.
1: I mean, what I am hearing is that I should be watching Daniel Tiger, even though I don't have children. Because anyone who teaches me how to do anything at this point, I'm on board. <laughs> Like, give me a cartoon that teaches me life. I still need it. We all still need it. Is he showing people, like, the motorcycle position for pooping? Like, what is he on? What kind of, what's his steez? What's he on out there? I mean, listen, as much as I would love for you to be
0: that creep that watches a cartoon about a four-year-old preschool character, I don't know. I mean, it's a little like you need something to get out of the funk. This might do the trick, but it comes with a consequence. (laughs) You're going to have to learn about taking a bath. (laughs) And maybe you already know how to do that.
1: But it could be one of those things where you think you know, and then Daniel Tiger is like, wash those pits, get in that crack. And you're like, you know, (laughs) I'm assuming that's how he talks. He's like, hey, kids, get in those cracks. Get in those cracks.
0: Uh, (laughs) If only. If that was the messaging, I would definitely be watching with my nephews. I would not be like running out of the room with my AirPods on being like, I have to listen to Megadeth now.
1: Well, the fact that Daniel Tiger exists is already helping lift me out of my funk. I just need to find a lilting British accent in a fun show to take me all the way home. (laughs) To my non-grief state, and I'll I'll find it. I'll find it. I might have to re-watch like Friday Night Dinner or something. Yeah. I feel like our movies this week, strangely, the theme really hits a theme I've been working with in my own life, which has led me into this grief talk.
0: Mm. Because
1: our theme this week is watch how you talk to me. <laughs>
0: Which is such a great phrase. Such a great phrase. I've been saying it pretty much on the hour, every hour since we pitched this topic.
1: <laughs> ah, it is, it's very all-encompassing. It is um, a multi-purpose phrase. And uh, I've been kind of saying this to a lot of people for the past couple of weeks as I as I fire them from working on my home.
0: <laughs> well, and thats that's, I think... Mainly, what I want to ask you about is what is the essence of "Watch How You Talk to Me."
1: Mm, very good question. For me, it is—it's an admonition, but it's also a warning. Mm. So it's like a like if you don't watch how you talk to me, shit will go down that you are not prepared for. It's like a blanket <laughs> statement warning. Yeah. Because if once you say that, anything could happen. Yeah. It could be a windmill of hands. It could be (laughs) I'm biting your shins. It could be I'm ruining your credit report. It could be anything after that phrase. Yeah. So watch how you talk to me is basically to me, it's like the ultimate feminist phrase. Yeah. Like you do not have my permission to speak to me that way. But if you continue, your life could be ruined.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think... (laughs) I thought that by putting these two movies together, it might have been too powerful for this podcast. Like... What do you mean? They're so fucking good. Yeah. And so fucking exhilarating, uplifting. There's horrible shit happening in both these films, Mm -hmm. but the ways that the characters in these movies find something to celebrate yes, is exhilarating. And I was like, I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I can handle watching these two movies back to fucking back and talk about them back to back. Like I'm just like so keyed up yeah, by both these films.
1: I feel you so hard because I watched, I did watch these as a double feature, like back to back. Yeah. And I felt like I could lift a car off of a baby at the end of it.
0: Exactly. And It's not enough that one of the films actually references the other at some point. Yes! But they also became these kind of like lexicon films, like movies that became part of our popular culture in a lot of ways. And they're kind of working in the same way because ultimately these are movies about women who are participating in crime Mm -hmm. and also... Um, a part of these friend groups or these friend pairings. And it's just like, it's so like interesting to know that these movies came out within a couple years of each other. And there was a moment, I think, in the 90s where there might've been like a kind of emphasis on women within movies and certainly within music. I mean, the 90s was had a lot of like female musicians and you know we talk about this all the time when we talk about the 90s and so there's a part of me that thinks that like this was sort of this like flash in the pan moment within film but also like they became like kind of these amazing movies that other generations of women still talk about and get inspired by so it's kind of like transcended that little moment you know the industry moment that we talk about where there's like a proliferation of a certain type of film and that, you know, there are movies that are made today that are in the spirit of movies like this. And I think people still love watching these films.
1: Oh, 100%. These are two films that are in very, they're great in conversation with each other. And you're seeing, you know, many sides of a very, very, there's a thin line that kind of separates these films in some ways, and then there's like a cavern that separates them In others. Yes. But I really think that they're great in conversation with each other because it's not just... You know, it's kind of marketed as they're both kind of marketed as one thing, but then both films take a very sharp turn to be about something else entirely that's much more empowering. Yeah. And, um, you know, even Roger Ebert said that in his review of my film um, that, you know, you think you're going and watching this movie about these four women who rob a bank, but it ends up being something else entirely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think they're in, you know, watching them back to back made me feel powerful and really focused in a way that I haven't felt in a long time because I think that it's nice to have these two examples of something that is still all too relevant to our lives. A conversation, at least, that's still relevant.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk about them. It's like I said, I hope that I can contain my excitement
1: this episode. You're going first, (laughs) so kick us off.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um. So my movie for the theme, Watch How You Talk to Me, is a movie from 1991. It was written by Callie Curry, directed by Ridley Scott, and it's called Thelma and Louise.
1: Thelma and Louise are going
0: to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a Coke back, please. Thelma!
1: Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it?
0: I don't even know how to begin. I wrote so many notes for this episode that I deleted. I deleted half of it because it was probably like eight pages long. (laughs) I know. I was like, I have so much to say. But I understand.
1: I understand. I know. I know. So, I
0: mean, I can listen. I know I talk a lot. So, I have to curb my enthusiasm sometimes. And uh, I certainly did with this film. Um, Right off the bat. Okay. Yes, this film is directed by the Hollywood legend Ridley Scott director of Alien, Blade Runner, what have you. However, we got to talk about Callie Curry, the writer of this film. Big fan over here. Southern gal, which I love. She was born in Texas, raised in Kentucky. You know, I think when she first started out in the business, she thought she was going to be an actor, but then she hated it. So she moved into production. She was doing commercials and music videos and stuff. And then wrote the screenplay for Thelma and Louise while she was working on those sets. And, you know, since then, she's directed and written a handful of films and TV shows. And, you know, almost all of them, I would say, are about friendships between women. Mm. And, you know, she's a feminist. She's an advocate for women working in the business. You know, all the stuff we love. And she said that writing Thelma and Louise was the greatest writing experience of her life. And the most fun she's had in her life. And hey, she won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay that year. So she definitely had fun and she worked really hard
1: and did a great job. And that was in a year when Silence of the Lambs cleaned up at most award shows. So that's impressive.
0: Yeah. Well, a one-sentence synopsis of Thelma and Louise is coming at you. Here it is. Two female friends set off to have the vacation of their lives, but instead become outlaws driving across the Southwest to Mexico to avoid being caught. And are there still men who are upset about this movie? Please get over it.
1: Was that part of the synopsis or just yes. a question? <laughs> <laughs> well, <like> some- <laughs> that
0: was, there's no punctuation. There's only one punctuation <laughs> as the end period. Please get over it.
1: I love this question, and I want you to talk... Do you want to talk more about that? Because I I guess I didn't realize when this film came out that there was any controversy around it at all.
0: Yes. There was a huge controversy, in fact. Because I feel like at the time, I mean, this is 91. Mm-hmm. Maybe we were still, like, suffering through our 80s cocaine hangover. I don't know why this movie was such a controversy, because to me, from a modern perspective, like, you know... We've had a story like this before, however, at the time, this was a big deal, and I think a lot of people thought that this movie was just going to inspire this rampant misandry and that women all over the world were going to run around killing men or something. I mean, I have no idea. What? Yeah.
1: That's what the controversy was?
0: I think so. I mean, honestly, like, I was pretty young when this movie came out, but I definitely heard it. Being described as like two women go around killing men. That's kind of how it was presented to me.
1: So did I. And I was like, grandma? And she's like, yeah, we're in. <laughs> we're like, oh, two women killing men. Let's ride.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and that's what I'm saying is that from a modern perspective, you look at that and you're going, like, okay, yeah, we that's like an episode of 30 Rock at this point. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> From back then, you know, it was it was kind of a big deal, and you know, again, like we are in a a culture now with marketplace feminism, and I'm sure there are T-shirts of screen grabs from Thelma and Louise that you can buy for like 55 bucks at Urban Outfitters or something like that, right? But um, I think at the time it made people feel a little a little uncomfortable. But I'm also here to say though that there are many other reasons to love this movie. I mean, it is. For me, one of the best movies about female friendship that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it's just a fucking great road movie. Yeah. You know? I mean, to me, it almost kind of feels also a little bit like a revisionist Western, which I don't know. I don't remember if we've actually talked about revisionist Westerns before as a genre. I don't think so. But- Whatever. I, I, I think it's kind of working in that sort of genre as well. I mean, this movie hits a lot of different notes for me. And yeah, with movies, I think, we've talked about and just others that we watch. I mean, sometimes we love a big message film. Right. Right? We like a, a movie that's just making a very big statement about something. Sometimes we like movies that have no statement at all and are just fucking stylish and cool looking. Mm-hmm. But I like that in Thelma and Louise, you get to discuss feminism and sexual violence and revenge, but then also it's beautiful and it's romantic and it's exhilarating, you know?
1: Yes. I love that you said this is a great road movie because that's the thing that I always think of when I think of this film first, is just the forward motion, the momentum that these two women have. And I think the controversy surrounding the film... um, Sounds like it kind of directly ignored the reason for the violence in the first place, which is crucial to the telling of this film.
0: I totally agree. So I'll just do a little bit of a plot. I mean, not much, because I feel like a lot of people have already seen this movie or they just sort of know what the movie is generally about. But the protagonists of this film are Thelma, played by Gina Davis, and Louise, played by Susan Sarandon. They're both living in a small town in Arkansas, And Thelma is a housewife who married the guy she met in high school and really hasn't done much beyond that, it seems like. Initially, she's very naive and sort of selflessly devoted to her husband, Daryl, who is played by Christopher McDonald. And let me just talk about Daryl for a second, because like you said, so much of the motivation for this road trip is based on these experiences that they're having with the men in their lives. Yes. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about Daryl, okay? Besides the fact that he's controlling and mean, he is also the kind of guy who has a personalized license plate on his Corvette that says, The One. (laughs) He is the kind of guy who wears a gold chain around his neck with the number one on it. He is the kind of guy who shamelessly cheats on his wife And likely leverages his position as a regional manager of a carpet store to get women. He's the kind of guy that holds a towel over a phone as he's talking to his missing wife so he can scream about a football game on TV. And he's the kind of guy that has to be told that he needs to act like he loves and misses his wife by the FBI when she calls him. And he's like, okay, if you say
1: so, I guess. This character is so great because Christopher McDonald is hilarious. Yes. He's a very funny actor and he played this role to a T. And I read something about how I guess he and Gina Davis had dated and she recommended him for the part because she's like, he is so great and funny. Um, but he is a mess. He is an absolute mess of a human being. Yes. And just that that phrase, all hat and no cattle, comes to mind. (laughs) And he thinks, the fact that he thinks he's pulling one over on her is what really gets me. Because he's like, I might be home late tonight. And she's like, yeah, I guess you're selling a lot of carpets on Friday night. Yeah. Like, that's just what you do. That's your busiest time, really, dude? So I just, I love that he thinks he's smarter than she is. And he kind of has this built-in air of entitlement that is very gendered, that he thinks allows him to do whatever he wants with no thought to Thelma. He gives her no thought. She's secondary in his life.
0: Yeah, and it was funny because I've seen this movie multiple times at multiple points in my life. And this most recent watch, I was like, I, I thought it was he was almost like too cartoonish, but then I stepped back and thought, nah, there are guys still out there like him. Don't get it twisted.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> but here's
0: the thing. Her best friend Louise, on the other hand, is a much different person, okay? Louise has the kind of world wariness that only comes from working long years in the service industry. You know, she's orderly, she's sharp, with a cigarette in her mouth. She's just kind of a take-no-shit type of gal, okay? And she recently left her boyfriend, Jimmy, has zero qualms about it. And honestly, she just kind of wants to, like, get out there and live life a little bit. And at the beginning of the movie, Louise convinces Thelma to go to a cabin in the mountains for the weekend, which, of course, Thelma is hemming and hawing about because of dumbass Daryl, okay? (laughs) But eventually, she starts loosening up, and they end up making this pit stop at a country music, like, roadhouse type of place. They start having drinks. They're listening to Charlie Sexton play. Everyone's two-step in. The works, right?
1: The very notion of having to ask a man for permission to go hang out with my friends, I, I can't. Yes. Like, the fact that she just left without telling him is perfect.
0: Yeah, and as it's revealed, he didn't even come home that night that they left. So it's that thing where he gets to stay out, yep, and she has to be there waiting for him when he's not coming home. It's like right. fucking crazy, right? But again, I think that this is was her lot in life at this point. She kind of accepted it as... Th- the uh, status quo, right? Yeah. But at the bar, Thelma gets approached by this real scuzzy barfly type guy named Harlan. And Thelma gets a little tipsy and she starts dancing with him. And Harlan convinces her to go out back. And eventually he forces himself on her in the parking lot, which is a very harrowing scene, indeed. Mm -hmm. Very tough to watch. And Louise suddenly comes out of the bar sees what's going on and she effectively saves Thelma from Harlan by pulling a gun on him yep and even though the immediate violence stops in that moment Harlan starts saying all this terrible awful shit to them and I think it's the purest notion of watch how you talk to me Louise shoots him and he dies
1: That is exactly what happens. Watch how you talk to me. Boom.
0: Yes. And after this is when the movie, I think, gets kicked up a notch. Thelma and Louise quickly decide that they're not going to go to the police because of something I think we've heard many times by this point. They just felt like nobody would believe them, that Thelma couldn't possibly be assaulted by someone she was seen having fun with earlier in the evening. So instead, they decide to just start running. And the rest of the film is essentially about the two of them fleeing the law after committing this murder. And Louise insists on not going through Texas, which is never actually revealed, but I think it hints to something pretty bad for her. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have to go around Texas to get to Mexico. I I think they go through, like, New Mexico and Arizona, so they're out, like, in this, you know, very deserted part of the country but also very picturesque. And look, I mean, we know that this road trip is happening because of some very unfortunate circumstances, but it's also this kind of transformative experience for them. Yes. Because I think that once they're out there, they're sort of locking into the freedom and exhilaration of being on this trip and being on the road. And Thelma especially. I mean, she just had this terrible experience happen to her, and she just really starts to find herself on this trip. And... I have to say, Them on the Run is just simply the fucking best.
1: They have such great banter. They're so fun. Even, again, like you said, in their more harrowing moments, they are. They have such a rapport that makes this such a great friendship movie. Yeah. And I think that something that I really appreciate about it during this viewing, because I'm the same way, I've seen it a bunch of times at many different points in my life, And I really appreciated how committed they were to each other. There was never a moment where it's like I'm going to bail, you're on your own, fuck you. They definitely had tough moments where they questioned each other and kind of butted heads. Yes, and had they had some "watch how you talk to me" moments with amongst themselves. Definitely, Um, but they always worked it out and kind of saw that greater good. And I think that it was it was really empowering and exciting this time around to watch these characters. Mm come into their own. It's like you could see the shells cracking yeah. off of them of, like, how they'd just been encased in this life that wasn't really meant for them. They were meant to be bigger than they were. Um, they were meant to do different things, and they kind of lived within these confines. And this trip, it's just, it's a really beautiful and miraculous imagery that's used in this film in a way that I just I hadn't tapped into in any of my other viewings that really helped exemplify, like, just how much freedom they were chasing. And I think that that notion of freedom is very prevalent in my film as well.
0: Yes, I agree. And look, I mean, I've driven across the country multiple times at this point in my life and have been through the parts of the country that they were presumably going through, like Mm -hmm. the Southwest, and um, I've been through Oklahoma City and Arkansas in my life. And I mean... There's a romance to road tripping. I mean, and this movie just really crystallizes it for me. Like, I immediately was like, I need to get a classic car and head towards the desert. I want the sweat and the dust in my hair. They have this very kind of like Route 66 version of a road trip where they're staying in these like tacky motels and they're eating in like 50s diners and they're wearing jeans and boots and cool sunglasses. And there's a lot of magic hour lighting, which is no doubt because of (laughs) Ridley Scott, or honestly, just the Scott brothers in general, both Tony and Ridley. I mean, they really know how to light a film, in my opinion. And- it is that moment where you're like, oh my gosh! Like, imagine being on the road with your best friend, and you're just like out of this old boring life that you had, and you're just having the time of your lives. And there, so what ends up happening is that they, the police, have figured out now that they are wanted for this murder, and there's this seemingly sympathetic detective that's on the case that's played by, um, or who's played by Harvey Keitel. And he seems to be the only person who sort of understands her situation in a way. Mm. Or he at least sort of understands that these two women have had it. Yes. With the men in their lives. I think he kind of picks up on that.
1: He also understands that they've been pushed to the brink. Yes in several situations, both in the the crime that they were involved in, in their lives, and in what happens later when he picks up J.D. Well, and that's the thing. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this
0: was the movie that gave us Brad Pitt, <laughs> who plays J.D., a drifter grifter, a robber of liquor in convenience stores, and he's got an upper body like you wouldn't believe. And... um. Thelma convinces Louise to let him hang out for a bit, which then leads to Thelma getting properly laid for the first time.
1: That's a she quote. Is so excited!
0: Yeah, the quote from Louise where she congratulates her for getting properly laid for the first time. Um, but then it also leads to JD robbing her of all of their money that they needed to get to Mexico.
1: Okay. Exactly, and that's when Harvey Keitel, like, when they catch up with him later, he says, "Do you think they would have committed the crime that they committed if you hadn't taken all their money?" Like, he's he's sympathetic in that way.
0: Right. Yes. And look, on the topic of Brad Pitt, we, you know, how I feel about Brad Pitt. We've talked about it many times on this podcast. Y'all can have young Brad Pitt, as you know. Because for me, the big heartthrob of this movie is Michael Madsen. (laughs) He plays Jimmy, who is Louise's old flame. He shows up to give Louise the money that JD eventually stole. Okay, And he's just this real tall drink of rockabilly water. (laughs) And the thing about their scenes together that I love are... Mostly because they're just melancholy and a little bit bittersweet because you can tell she left and he's kind of like, what happened to you? And he wants her back and he shows up and he even has a ring and you can just tell she's just moved on. And there's this phrase that Louise keeps saying in the movie, which is that she keeps saying, you get what you settle for. Mm. And I think that's kind of the perfect encapsulation of what she's feeling (laughs) about him, about Jimmy
1: and about life
0: (laughs) yeah about life I mean this is she doesn't want to settle she wants to live on her own terms and you know I think after a while as they're both on the road Thelma starts to believe this too and it's so funny there's this line that Thelma says as she's just robbed the convenience store (laughs) she's loading a gun while driving which is such a great look and she's like no I know it's crazy I just feel like I got a knack for this shit uh, it just cracks me up because she the evolution of Thelma is, I think, one of the most pleasing things about this film.
1: Completely. Oh, God. It's so funny.
0: But I got to tell you, my favorite scene in the entire movie is the one where they finally confront the gross trucker guy that they've been seeing.
1: Yes!
0: Captain Muff Diver, as he calls himself. Okay? With that tongue. Oh, God. And there's the scene of the two of them. So they, like, pull them over. And the scene of Thelma and Louise sitting on the car with their guns as he's approaching them is so hot. I can barely fucking stand it. Like, it's so hot. And what happens right after is the ultimate watch-how-you-talk-to-me moment. I mean, it's
1: just so epic. Yes. I feel like you can say it, because people have seen this movie.
0: Yeah, well basically they co- he comes up they're like, "Do you think you're fucking cute and sexy with that disgusting tongue, you big pig?" And he's just like, "Fuck you." And then they just blow up his fucking 18-wheeler <laughs> tanker truck and it explodes. <laughs> and they just do donuts in his fucking face and it's so awesome. <laughs>
1: I wish I could do donuts out of every conversation Yes, that is a watch-how-you-talk-to-me conversation.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And listen, at the end of the day, I mean, like I said, I have to really edit myself with how I talk about this movie because I could go weekends and months and years on this film. I Every time I watch it, I like it more and more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people probably know the ending by this point, since it is such a part of pop culture. But the thing that I think is interesting is that there is a similarity to your film, which I know you're about to talk about. And I just think that, at the end of the day, this movie is about these two women who just want to create their own legacies. And they just find inspiration from being out on the road and being with each other and making their own rules. And... I think the ending is the perfect ending for that. In the spirit of that, do you know
1: what I mean? Absolutely, and it is. It is talked about. It is on lists. That ending is iconic for a reason. Yeah, and it's easy to forget. You know, when, this is again like the joy of going back and watching these, some of these films. It's easy to forget that this movie was the catalyst. For seeing a lot of kind of endings that were beginnings in their own way or kind of you know it it, this this movie set a tone for sure when it comes to discussing how women conceive of their own lives and um, I just absolutely the ending of this movie will always bring me to tears yes you know and Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon have both had very long and storied careers this is their best work individually I think for each of them as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I mean, Gina Davis has gone on to do incredibly cool things with her foundation. You know, she's like this mensa level <laughs> like genius uh, who has really focused her career on building the lives of of women and girls and building the brains of women and girls and giving people opportunities. Um, but I just feel like this movie, it gets me going. It makes me, ins- it's inspiring. It's an inspiring film. Yeah. Uh, that is, you know, that these are two women who were cast in their 30s and 40s, which was older than the characters originally set out um, by Callie Corey, <laughs> which is unheard of that they cast women who are older than they're supposed to be. But yeah, I just, I truly appreciate this movie for launching Brad Pitt. <laughs> Which again, this is something that's also interesting to me about this movie is that Brad Pitt is definitely talked about as like a very crucial or, or critical part of this film. But the movie is not about him. Yes. <laughs> the movie is about Thelma and Louise. It is not about him. So I love that they were able to to walk that line that he is not so big in this film, that he overshadows it. He's just a fun and interesting part of the life cycle that's much more more important. But yeah, I love it. I'm glad you picked it.
0: (laughs) Thanks. No, I think he plays just a part of the evolution of her. Yeah. I think that started before he showed up and really gets going after he leaves. Yeah. So it's that thing where like, yeah, you could hinge this entire characters, like awakening on this, like one fucking hunky blonde guy, but it's, it becomes so much more than that. And I, I think I appreciate that. Plus from what I've seen and in, in interviews with Kelly Curry and sort of reading about this film, I think she wanted to create characters that were these women that she wanted to have hang out with and that were cool to her because there wasn't that sort of that representation for her. I think she felt like, oh, I want to write a movie about these women that I would admire and hang out with and think were cool. And I don't know. That's a cool notion to me. So I'm, I'm so glad to have seen it again. I mean, I'll, I watch it once in a while and every time I like it more and more, like I said, and, and I think it ties in really nicely with your film in a way
1: I think it does too yeah so my film for our theme of watch how you talk to me was released in 1996 it was directed by f gary gray uh, and written by kate lanier and takashi buford uh the story is also by takashi buford and my film is set it off please do not be misled by the fact that these four bandits are female and 90 seconds. I absolutely love this movie. Yeah, man. And I will give you a one-sentence synopsis because I have so much to say, I just want to get right into it. So my one-sentence synopsis of Set It Off. A lifetime of systemic oppression overflows into completely appropriate rage for four Southern Los Angeles women who decide to get their own reparations by robbing banks.
0: Yes, man. That's perfect.
1: Ah, uh, I just, I adore this film for being so secretively very inspiring. Mm. Um, like I said, when I looked at the Roger Ebert review, he said that it's advertised as a thriller about four Black women who rob banks, but it's a lot more than that. And to continue to quote him, it creates a portrait of the lives of these women that's so observant and informed. He says it's like waiting to exhale with a strong jolt of reality. Thank you, Roger Ebert, for saying that. But I have my own thoughts about this movie, which is that it makes me so mad about the plight of Black women in society. It makes me so mad about the treatment of Black women in society. And it makes me want to do something about the way that Black women are denigrated in this society. I have experienced some of these things myself but I thought that the way that each woman... It was portrayed in such a way that each woman had her own specific battle to fight within the system. Yeah. But when you put it all together, it's like they were all kind of fighting the same injustice time and time again. Yeah. And so the movie is directed by F. Gary Gray, who directed Friday... He directed the Italian Job remake. He is a primarily South L.A. raised guy. He's, you know, directed music videos, namely Waterfalls by TLC. I mean, come on, people. (laughs) And Miss Jackson by Outkast. Where my Atlians at? (laughs) (laughs) Right here. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So he's had this great career, and he's an incredible director. Like, he has a real style. There's a stylistic element to his directing that makes even the most common scenes, they're lifted into like a very extraordinary place. So he, you know, will be filming images of these women hanging out in front of a project, you know, just sitting in Queen Latifah's car and drinking. And it takes on this artistic quality of like a Renaissance painting (laughs) the way that he directs them. I just, I really love that he seemed to have the language to make this film as important as it actually is. He kind of had the language to, um, to elevate it. And it's an incredible film to to work with. It's got a rock star cast. <laughs> I mean, you've got oh my Jada Pinkett Smith playing Stony, Vivica Fox plays Frankie. Kimberly Elise plays Tishawn, And Queen Latifah plays Cleo. And let me tell you, Queen Latifah is a national goddamn treasure. <laughs> I will hear nothing else.
0: I feel like Cleo is her truest form
1: absolutely was going to say (laughs) Like, this is the most (laughs) i'm so glad we're on the same wavelength because like this is the most queen latifah that we have seen on screen to date if you ask me (laughs) yeah like just fun loving and forceful and directed and motivated and queer and just like out there doing her shit and she's gonna get hers however she can. Yeah. I love Cleo yeah. and I think that this is um these ensembles that are made up of four it's very easy to kind of pick and choose yeah. who you think you are but there's elements of each and every single one of these women in me. Yeah. Like each each and every single one of these characters is something that I think is um has been pulled out <laughs> in a way that if it were put back together it could be Any of us. Yeah. Any of us. Just truly beautiful. Um, But the way that the movie starts is that Frankie, the Vivica Fox character, is a bank teller. She works at a bank. And the bank is robbed by someone she knows from where she lives. And his name is Darnell. And he is like, this is not a joke. Because she keeps telling him, please don't do this. Don't do this. And he's there with a couple of accomplices. And he grabs a patron in a headlock and shoots this woman in the head right in front of her. Mm. And she is too shocked to move. She is traumatized instantly. Darnell and his crew hop up on, you know, the counter, and they're taking all the money, and a couple of them get shot. They get shot and die in the same way that I feel like everyone in the 90s got shot, which is like they got 18 bullets in them, and they were just like convulsing the whole time ping
0: ping 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 yeah it's such a 90s style you know of death I don't
1: know what yeah what that is it was weird I didn't recognize it until I watched this movie and then I'm like oh yeah people don't die like that anymore yeah <laughs> like, that was a very 90s death but yeah Frankie is traumatized and totally shocked and after the event she survives and she's talking to the bank branch manager and the cops, namely John C. McGinley, who plays Detective Strode at the LAPD, and the cops are like, we know you were in on it. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she's like, mm. you know the protocol for, you know, you didn't follow the procedure at all for what to do during a bank robbery. And it's like, hello, it's very different when you're in the situation and someone's getting shot in the head in front of you. But the cops insist that she was involved to the point where her bank manager, on the spot, she still has blood caked on her suit. And the bank manager says, we're going to let you go. Oh, man. And that's my first, like, watch how you talk to me moment. Because she gets in his face and is like, really? You're not even going to give me a minute to recover from what I've been through? And you think that you can't trust me all of a sudden because I live in the same area as the guy that robbed you? Because, again, instead of that telegraphing to this bank manager, hey, it sucks that, you know, we pay people so little (laughs) they have to live in places that are somehow unsustainable. Yeah. Instead, he thinks it's your fault for knowing this guy. Yeah. And it's this really covert racism. It's just, it's very... It's a very fraught scene and this is just like within the first 5 minutes of the movie. Yeah, gosh. But, you know, she really lays into him and it was exciting to see, but it also felt dangerous. Like I every time I see this movie, I feel like, yes, tell him what's up. But also Ooh, girl, be careful. Like, it is a very strange position to be in, feeling that, that juxtaposition. But that's all right. She's, like, cool. She's unemployed now. She's been traumatized. And the cops basically are, like, trying to pin her for a crime that she had no part in. Then we kind of get to meet the rest of the characters at this party that Stoney is is throwing for her brother Stevie. Stevie's a high school student, graduated, got into UCLA, and um, she's throwing this party to celebrate. Everyone else came dressed as like a 70s-inspired person. And Cleo comes basically dressed as herself. Because she's like, it's Halloween. What do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> and then you come to learn that, that these three women, um, that Stoney, Cleo, and Tashawn, all work for oh. this man named Luther at Luther's janitorial. And they each have reasons to need money fast. So, Tashawn's reason is that Luther said he would pay her under the table and he starts taking taxes out of her check so she can't afford to pay her babysitter because she has a very small son. She has a toddler that she's trying to take care of on her own. Stoney needs money because her brother uh, did not get a scholarship to get into UCLA and she wants to send him to college. It's very important to her. Both of their parents have died. And she's been taking care of him. Mm-hmm. Cleo needs money because, you know, in that Cleo way, it's like, I want to get my car fixed. I want to treat my girl right. <laughs> I want to, like, a bigger life than what I have. Yeah. And then Frankie starts working with them as well because she just lost her job and can't get a recommendation because of the bank. So they're all pushed into the situation where you get to instantly see how socially— They are set up to fail. And I think the most heartbreaking scene in the beginning of this movie for me is when Stoney is like, I need money. Nate wants to hire me to work at his car lot, but he also wants something else. And she basically has sex with this guy, Nate. And Nate is Mac from Night Court. He's the actor Charles Robinson
0: god it's a
1: much different role than mac i will say yeah, that quite, quite a turn from that <laughs> um, but she does it's so heartbreaking because she has sex with him to get a check to send her brother to college and then she comes home and he's like look i lied to you i didn't actually get into ucla mm. so she was put in a position where she had to trade sex for money yeah and you can tell that it while it's happening, it's crushing her spirit, but especially afterwards, she's like a a different person. Yeah, um, And she's incredibly upset with her brother. Um, he leaves the house, and he goes to hang out with this guy named Lorenz, who just happened to be one of the guys who robbed the bank. And this is a guy who had these very specific initials kind of cut into the back of his hairdo, AP. And... Stevie gets the same initials to be cool and hang out with his friend, and he's getting his bottle of champagne. His friends want to celebrate him graduating high school and going to college. He gets his haircut, gets his bottle of champagne, leaves, and the cops have been surveilling this apartment. Uh, so when he comes out and they see the, his haircut, they assume that he's Lorenz and they shoot and kill him. And this is a movie more than any other. And I'm about to say something that I absolutely will not retract and that I 100% think that if you disagree with me, you should do your research to understand why I feel this way, even in film, but especially in real life. Absolutely fuck the LAPD. They are a gang of racists and they are the worst of what law enforcement has to offer. There are many documentaries and articles you can read if you want to understand the history of their cruelty and how murderous they are. I would start with the article that's actually a 15-part investigative series by Cerise Castle on Knock LA called A Tradition of Violence, the History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Uh, And I would also, if you are able to access it, watch the O.J. Made in America uh, documentary. It's a film by Ezra Edelman. And uh, in talking about the O.J. Simpson uh, case, it gives a, a shocking history of the LAPD. The LAPD is truly horrible, and they are terrible in this scene, even though I think they're trying to get us to be sympathetic with the Detective Strode character, because he's like, oh, Mm. oh, God, we messed up. It's just a kid. It's just a bottle of champagne. And I'm like, it's too fucking late. You gunned down somebody in cold blood. And to see Stoney's reaction to seeing her brother gunned down, her brother who was a college-bound, you know, good kid, but even if he wasn't, you know, for her, that was her brother. And it was just truly ridiculous to me and heartbreaking to see something on film that is still replicated in real life 20 years later, time and time again. It's, it's heartbreaking that this is still, nobody has learned anything from these moments enough to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, I gotta say that the Strode character is really interesting in this film. Mm-hmm. And... I think that at a certain point he is supposed to have some kind of transformative moment or some like aha moment about what's going on. Right. And I still don't buy it. I don't know what's like I to me it's I think maybe like when I first watched this movie in the 90s. I just didn't have enough patience to kind of really figure it out. I just thought, okay, he's the bad cop that's trying to bust these women that I want to win, so I don't give a shit about him beyond that. But I think now that I watched it again, in like a more recent modern context, I was like, yeah, I don't know what this character is. Like, I feel like they're trying to make him multifaceted, and I just don't think I buy it. I think I... By the end of it, I don't feel any differently than I did when I when he first came in.
1: You know, absolutely. That is a, a very, again, very astute and eloquent way to say what I just cursed my way through. Because <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with you. I do not feel any differently about this character at, at the end than I do at the beginning. Which is fuck this guy. Yeah, fuck this guy. And it's also my my kind of second moment of watch how you talk to me. Stony is wailing. She's wailing at the loss of her brother. Her friends are holding her and hugging her. And all this motherfucker has to say to her is there will be an investigation. Yeah. And she goes for his throat as she should. Yeah. Just that that again like the watch how you talk to me for this for this film for me takes so many different shapes because Yeah. It's partially like a, you know, don't start, none won't be none. But it's also like, you know, you need to be less cavalier about your approach to how you treat Black people and Black women. And you need to, you know, when it comes to medical racism, when it comes to all of these different things that we we deal with on a regular basis, it's like, you need to watch how you talk to me. (laughs) You need to treat me, first and foremost like a human being, which is sad to say, a lot of us do not get that treatment right out of the gate, the way some other people might. So I felt like that was a very watch-how-you-talk-to-me moment. Mm -hmm. But the movie really kicks into high gear after this. There was a scene of all four of them Kind of sitting on the roof getting, getting high and looking at this old factory, this old plant that had closed down and talking about how like, man, they used to pay people $15 an hour then and, you know, talking about what they would do with the money. But it's also when they come up with this plan to rob a bank. And at first, it's kind of like a chuckle, ha-ha thing. Because Frankie's like, if you want to rob a bank, I can tell you how to rob a bank, because I yeah. worked at a bank. <laughs> and Cleo's like, whatever, I'm in. I'm fucking in. And you know, Stoney and Tashawn are kind of reluctant. But again, they've all been pushed to this point where they need money that they will never be able to get in order for their lives to be different than they are. And they are working so hard for so little for so long. And the idea becomes a reality after Stevie is murdered. Yeah. And that's all that, that Stony needs to kick her over into this life of crime. And Cleo says something that I think a lot of people feel, which is we're just taking away from the system that's fucking us all anyway. Yeah. So it really is kind of a very reparations-motivated robbery. And their plan right off the bat is to just be smarter than... The other bank robbers like the Darnells of the world uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of planning that is that ultimately goes out the window during their first robbery in a very funny way where they're kind of like they plan they plan they plan and then they pick this bank and Stoney's nervous Tashaun is nervous because they're like we didn't case this bank we don't know what's up we should wait and Frankie's like oh really we should wait and then she just cocks her gun and goes in <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> After they've already made eight mistakes, like they're putting on their wigs in the lobby, they're talking very loudly about the crime, and she's like, "Oh, really?" And then she just goes in and robs it. Um, <laughs> but what be- it becomes this real cat and mouse kind of chase with the the cops and these four women. And what's really surprising is that you you root for these women throughout and in different ways. Like I rooted for Stony to get together with Blair Underwood. You know, like, I wanted that relationship to happen so hard. Oh they are from completely opposite sides of the track. But I wanted that relationship to work. And he works at a bank. He works at a bank. But, like, you know, oh. this is a doomed relationship from the start. But Blair Underwood can pull off a pencil mustache. <laughs> he is the creme de la creme. I met him briefly in person. And I just got to say that he looked fantastic. Fantastic and was very, very kind.
0: Yeah. COVID, please don't take our hot, eternally young king. Oh, my God. Blair Underwood, the vest that he wears in this movie sends me into a tizzy. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that fucking vest is, like... So insane. He's got, like, just the right amount of corniness to where I'm like, I love it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not completely, like, ridiculous, but it's also, like, he's a little corny. And um, you're right. You want them to work out, despite the fact that they're, like, nothing alike. And despite the fact that he wears that fucking vest, you just want them to work.
1: (laughs) Keith, he plays a character named Keith, and he is just a delight Just a true delight. And it's also where we get some of the deeper conversations with Stoney that she then turns around and asks her friends. So there's a point where she's walking around his apartment and she's looking at some of his artwork and she says, do you feel free? And he immediately answers, yeah, of course. Yeah, I feel free. Of course I feel free. And she absolutely doesn't. She feels trapped. She feels trapped in a system. She feels trapped in a culture. And it's, again, like, heartbreaking to watch. Um, it's a very tender scene. But the The fact that she could even think to ask something that poignant in the midst of her own misery, I thought, was just a really good, a really nice character move. Yeah, for for Stony, because she kind of and, and you know, it's something that Keith comments on, where he's like, "I can't believe you're like this, such a hard, hard motherfucker." Because like, you're really not. He's like, "You're really not that that person," but she's had to be to survive. She's had to be that hard to survive. Yeah. So it's nice that he can kind of bring that tenderness out of her. He also asks her, where do you think you're going to be in five years? And he has this whole speech about how Black people are not used to thinking about the future. And surprisingly to me on this watch, on this viewing, that really got to me the most. I think that, you know, in in other times I've watched this film, that line is just kind of slid by. But he really makes a case for how, you know, Black people are not used to thinking about the future because the future is not for us. Yeah, And so... It was very, again, like eloquent the way that he said it. And I think that that line of thinking is changing or has started to change for sure. <laughs> you know, I see it a lot in, you know, like books by Jenna Wortham. And, and you know, there's, there's definitely a conversation to be had about how, how Black people are the future. But it's still rare for a lot of Black people to feel like they have a future, even if they can say that they are the future. I feel like I have a future finally. For a long time, I didn't. You know, for a long time, I didn't. I think it was a, a, both a culmination of my depression, but also just looking at what society had laid out for me as what was possible and not really knowing where I fit in and how to fit in my ambition and my desires with this world that told me, like, no, nah, we're never going to let you do that or we're not going to help you do that. So, I don't know. This That conversation really hit me hard this time. And I it made me appreciate their relationship so much more. Because let me tell you... <laughs> They do rob this bank. Uh, they don't get a lot of money, but they get just enough to survive. Uh, you know, when it's split up four ways, it, it's enough to take care of everyone's problems when it's split up four ways. They hide the money in a vent at work. And then Luther, their boss, finds it and steals it. Mm. And all hell truly breaks loose. It includes murder. It includes mayhem, and they have to rob another bank in order to survive. Uh, they have to rob another bank in order to get the money they need. And it has to be a big hit, and it has to be one and done. Like, they don't want to do it again after this. It's that one-last-job trope <laughs> that they play so well in this film. And the end of the film is is devastating in many ways and I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it but it is truly remarkable uh this movie is a classic I think it doesn't get half of the credit it deserves for being a classic and I absolutely love it and it is a a watch how you talk to me bible uh, from from top to bottom
0: yeah I um loved watching this again I mean the part where they're all sitting around that office building and they're doing their Godfather impressions is oh so gosh. adorable. I laughed so hard, so cute and funny. It's just, it was a really like light moment that happened yes. because, you know, the reality is, is that there's a lot going on in this film. It's really depressing yeah. in a lot of parts for, and their individual breaking points are really tough. Like it's tough to watch Tashaun, to Go through the situation with her son. It's it's tough to watch Stony, obviously, and obviously at the very beginning with Frankie, that part really was like, wow, that's the first five minutes of the movie, and it's just already super sad and hardcore. But you know, there are moments where um, it's absolutely exhilarating to watch these four women like commit fucking crimes, like when they when they first like do the big job, and then they all just like sit around with a pile of money and they're hugging (laughs) each other, like the part where. Uh, fucking Cleo drives the Suburban through the bank. Beautiful. Screaming on my feet, clapping <laughs> like I'm at the Oscars. I'm like fucking screaming for these women. And- I think that what you said earlier, I think, in the intro to the theme is really interesting because it feels like, yes, there are similarities between my movie and your movie, completely different ways of getting there Mm -hmm. and completely different circumstances, obviously. I mean, with Thelma and Louise, you've got two white women. They're in another space dealing with their kind of like feelings of being trapped, right? In whatever circumstances they're in. These women have a completely different reality, obviously, and their feelings of being trapped. There's just so much higher stakes for them, and yet the exhilaration that I felt with the women working together mm-hmm. and seeing like their friendship, you know, was exhilarating just as much as it was in Thelma and Louise. Like I just loved, yes, seeing that, and just these little moments, like Queen Latifah. <laughs> Like she gets when Cleo gets the money and she is like having a ball with her girlfriend, you're
1: just like, holy shit, like And she's broke almost instantly. Yes, like she does exactly what she wants, which is like, I am not gonna use this money to plan any kind of future. I'm going to use this money to have fun right now.
0: That's the interesting thing too about when you put like the four characters together, right? You just have the quadrant of personalities,
1: right? Yes.
0: Frankie is like I am absolutely doing this. I know how to do it. I'm very confident that I can rob a bank. Yep. Cleo will always rob a bank with you. Oh, <laughs> like no, no problem. No questions asked. It's it's no, not a problem, you know. And then from there it goes like Stoney is kind of on the fence, and then Tishon is definitely like the I don't know about this guy's person. Yes, you know, we there always is one in a group, right? And to me, that is like. Something that is interesting to see play out is sort of their personalities kind of together, yeah, in their friendship group.
1: Yeah, because there's always someone with nothing to lose and somebody who has something incredibly important to lose. Those are the most interesting dynamics, and to jam them all together on that spectrum is it just creates a group of women like I've never seen before on on screen before or since. Right. Um, I want to talk about briefly just this idea that. For me, what is controversial about these movies is the idea that for women, freedom equals death. Yeah. And that death is the only pathway to freedom. It's fucking depressing. It is so upsetting.
0: Yeah. And, you know, without... We're going to dance around some spoilers, maybe. So if you're not into it, fast forward. But I think that Cleo and Frankie, in particular, feel like they're... The way that they end up at the end of this film is a little of the drive off the cliff moment or something. Yeah. It's it's this kind of thing where I think with Cleo especially, mm. but those moments, both in film and Louise and set it off for those four characters that do this, is um, yeah, it it, it it's like exhilarating, but then you're like, oh, but then also they died to be free. Yeah, And what does that mean? Yeah. You know, like, it's kind of a terrible thought, you know?
1: It's a terrible thought because I feel like there are metaphorical ways that that happens for a lot of women, and that's what's upsetting as well. It's like we get to see it play out on the screen in this more grandiose way of, you know, death equals freedom. But I think that for a lot of women, tiny deaths... And small decisions and small mercies and, and, you know, just these tiny cuts in their lives is what makes their lives livable. But it also takes away from so much from them. Yeah, And it's just really, really depressing. So I think that it's... Important to see that play out on screen and important to see in these two films, especially how that can look from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different, you know, cultural points of view. But I, I guess it's just upsetting to know that it is it is an ongoing trope that will outlive us that in order for women to survive and live in a, in a free way, they have to lose something.
0: yeah. Well, listen, I know this was kind of a heavy episode.
1: <laughs> Started on a bummer, <laughs> ended on a bummer.
0: <laughs> Look, it it's gonna happen. What what are we gonna do? Like it's winter.
1: <laughs> what do you expect from us? It's winter. We're back on the East Coast.
0: The holidays are upon us. Like, it's what's gonna happen. And I mean, honestly, when I when I joked about this episode being too powerful for this podcast, <laughs> it was really just The joy that I felt watching these two films, despite all of the big questions and everything that we just discussed. I mean, like, as pure movie-going, as pure cinema, if you will, like, it was great to watch these back-to-back. Absolutely. I loved it, and I'm
1: glad we did it. Me too. And I'm glad we're gonna do it again, and maybe next week I will not be watching fucking Six Feet Under, and I'll be bringing more energy... (laughs) my usual absurdity to the <laughs> table oh
0: and hey we should tell everybody about the Wexer event that we just came back from
1: Oh, it was so much fun! We were invited to the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio, and we presented two movies on Friday. Uh, Nine to Five was one of them, and so was Thelma and Louise, which we just heard um, heard us talk about in great detail. Yes, <laughs> and it was a blast. Um, yes. Cannot thank the Wexner Center enough. So, Stoltz, Layla, Dave, everyone involved in making that such an incredible event for us Um, we felt very welcomed we had so much fun and also we definitely should give a shout out to the audience we had a lot of people who traveled from farther away than I would have and uh, I'm grateful for that we got a lot of gifts and your questions were incredible
0: yeah totally the best experience. We loved seeing you guys. We hope to do more of this in the future. We're kind of cooking up some ideas. So maybe when the new year rolls around and it stops snowing, (laughs) we can start thinking about coming to see you in your town. And just got to say, Danielle, it was a pleasure to be with you. I hadn't seen you in person since we started this podcast. And it was I know such a treat. I mean, it was just like the old gangs back together again. And I had a blast. So thanks. It to was really there.
1: great. Thanks to them. And thanks to you. Like, thank you for for just being so wonderful that people want to invite us places because it ain't for this old lady.
0: Oh, shut your <laughs> mouth. Shut your mouth.
1: But we got to see so many fun people and friends and, and again, like, thank you for everyone who came, who gave us anything, even if it was just your time. We had a blast.
0: Yes. Listen, we've got a couple of beggars next week, I have to say. (laughs) Lay it on them. All right. For next week, you are to watch Big Night from 1996 and the trip from 2010 uh, what is the theme
1: what is that theme you can guess on our social media if you'd like uh, we are at I saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter
0: um yeah if you want to email us I saw what you did pot at gmail.com
1: uh, we have a bunch of premium episodes up at Stitcher premium and you can use the promo code saw for a free month
0: yes fun episodes there and we got some merch it's uh, in the exactly right shop at exactly rightmedia.com
1: thank you for bearing with me during the, the grimmest episode <laughs> episode
0: well listen I am here for you all the time I take you any way I can get you and uh, listen when it comes down to it like I would definitely rob a bank with you I would drive a classic car across the country with you and um, so much more. I think we have our plans for summer 2022. That's all I'm hearing. I mean, look, you will see me in a rhinestone country blouse. (laughs) Is all (laughs) I have
1: to say. (laughs) And I will be wearing Brad Pitt like a backpack. (laughs) 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 On that note, goodbye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi, our engineer is Annalise Nelson, our theme songs by Tom Bryfogle. artwork by Garrett Ross, our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod, email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail, and please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.